0: Once again, and welcome to another Ask Andrew. This is Andrew Kern, and my question for today fits in with our theme of the week here at Circe Institute in honor of Russell Kirk's 100th birthday, which unfortunately he didn't live to celebrate with us um, physically. Um, but in honor of Russell Kirk's 100th birthday, um, I'm addressing the question, why did you name the Paideia Prize the Russell Kirk Paideia Prize? And the the easiest answer is because when we asked Annette Kirk, Russell's wife, if we could, she said yes. And so that worked out nicely. But why did we ask her might be the next question that you're really wishing we'd get to. And I want to tell you what Russell Kirk has has meant to me personally a little bit. And I don't have forever to do this and it could take that long. So let me just make a couple comments um, as best as I'm able. But I encountered Russell Kirk myself when I was in my... Late teens or early twenties, I encountered his writings. Is what I should say, when when I was I was a youthful, ignorant person who had a lot of respect for tradition, even though I was brought up in a very very non traditional religion uh, religious um, community, but um, or we called ourselves non traditional. But I had a I had an intuitive respect for tradition and. And I was looking at the political scenario. This is in, I turned 17 in 1980. So this is the, this is the, it might have been as early as that. Anyway, in the 80s is the point. I was looking around the political developments that were going on. And of course, as an American, you're always in despair over politics because the great thing about the united states constitution is that everybody gets to have a viewpoint and gets to express it and the most insane things can be heard publicly and and that whole continuity that underlies everything that's that that stable ballast that that stays in the base of our the ship of our society that doesn't get talked about a lot cuz it just stays there well being from Wisconsin of course I'm not on I'm one of the I'm not from one of the coasts that are always trying to be the future or trying to change the world or trying to um be the fountainhead of culture I was sitting in the middle of the country where nothing new ever happened I suppose I had a great respect for tradition and for old things I wanted to have an old education right I wanted to know stuff and I'd read CS Lewis quite a bit by then um But what was going on politically to my youthful mind was was kind of chaotic and crazy. And I'm I wanted to understand I wanted to have a positive input in the future of our country. Now, when I was 22, David was born. And once you have children, um, to oversimplify, you stop being a liberal and you become a conservative. But one of the things that happened with my mind was that Russell Kirk showed that those categories don't really work when when the popular media, the consensus media controls them. So I needed an argument for things that I believed because people would challenge me and just because I wanted to understand them. And I needed to correct some things that I believed. One thing I really, really wanted, and I got this from my dad, I think, especially, I really wanted to see racial relations restored and healed in the country. And I wasn't seeing politics doing it. So I started to read political writings and philosophical writings and so on. And of everything I read, the things that were most unique and thoughtful and and demanded the most of me were the works of Russell Kirk and people in his circle. Let me put it negatively for a second. When I look at the modern... The madness of modern politics, and when I feel the frustration that one has to feel with what is called conservatism Inc. Fox News, Rush Limbaugh, that sort of thing. When you feel the frustration of this extremism in conservative bodies and conservative language, I should in conservative wardrobe, you you want something richer and deeper. You don't want some kind of reactionary. That's how I was feeling. I needed something better than that. Now, let me put it positively. What I'm saying is that in those early days, Russell Kirk was a voice of reason to me, was a voice of calmness, was a voice of respect. That's what I want to say above all. He was a voice of respect. And he taught me that The real conservatism, and by conservatism, I'm not talking about politics here. I'm talking about a view of reality. Um, I consider myself what you might call Burke to Kirk conservative, Burke being Edmund Burke, Kirk being Russell Kirk, and then this long stream of very careful, deep thinkers. But it goes back to David Hume. It goes back to the beginnings of time when i was looking for and discovered voices of reason and 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 calmness and people who predicted the future much more effectively by the way from their perspectives i started i started to hear phrases that really caught me um in fact let me just list a few positive um benefits that i gained from russell kirk and then i want to talk specifically about education A number of phrases that he used in his writings caught me, like, for example, the moral imagination. That's a term that comes from Edmund Burke's reflections on the revolution in France. But it's one that Russell Kirk made, a more uh, widely accepted term, and then writers like Vegan Garoyan helped to expand it into the public consciousness more, and we've been trying to do what we can to help teachers understand the importance of developing the moral imagination. Another phrase I loved in Kirk's writings is the unbought grace of life. Turns out that also comes from Edmund Burke, The Unbought Grace of Life. There's a title of my favorite book on politics, probably, um, which is called The Politics of Prudence. Every now and again, I describe myself as a prudentialist. I prefer to to speak of prudence instead of conservatism because conservatism has been taken over by crazy people. But The Politics of Prudence appeals to me. In one place, Russell, and many places, I think, and at Kirk and Burke both refer to what they call a natural aristocracy. I like that. Not an oligarchy, not a moneyed aristocracy, not a landed aristocracy, but a natural aristocracy. And what they mean is an aristocracy of virtue. They also term, they also or Kirk speaks of the arrogant man of ideas. That's something that scares me. I like to think. I like to think about ideas and I, I like to imagine that I'm almost okay at doing it. But I'm terrified of being an arrogant man of ideas because arrogant men of ideas have influence over society. And did you ever notice that ideas can have a negative influence? And it scares me to think that in my arrogance, I could start promoting ideas that lead to people dying. He also uses the phrase a vast utilitarian tedium. I'll let you have that one. And then he uses a word allotted, which I think also comes from Burke, and this was a common term in the 18th and 19th centuries, I think, and that's the term leveler. Leveler. The levelers were people who wanted everybody to be at the same level. They were opposed to every kind of hierarchy. And I consider, I consider being called a leveler an accusation of abject folly, there there isn't a dumber idea a more unpracticable idea than to put everybody at the same level of social status of economic rating of uh, intellectual activity whatever and to expect that to survive for more than 3 seconds And if you force it to survive for longer than three seconds, then it will lead to violence. That's what it does. That's what happens in our schools where everybody's at an equal level and you're not allowed to make distinctions because that might hurt feelings, I guess. What Russell Kirk had, therefore, was a clear-eyed, unsentimental vision of reality. The way I put it when I was taking notes for this is a stunning, clear-eyed realism which leads to humility about ideas and about knowledge. And that calls for prudence instead of ideas. I hope you can see the difference because it's a huge one. Another positive that I gained from Russell Kirk is this tremendous sense of historical continuity that that if you think in, if you think as a conservative, that didn't come to be with Ronald Reagan in the 80s. Okay, that didn't even come to be in the 50s. Conservative thought goes back to the ancient Romans, the ancient Greeks. It goes back to the ancient Israelites. It goes back to anybody who believes in in permanent things, as as Russell Kirk called them. Permanent things, things that don't change. Another positive um, impact he had on me was he gave me a very realistic, please hear that word, realistic respect for our country. Realistic in two senses. One in the sense that I don't believe our country is perfect. I believe that our country has deep, deep, deep wounds. Like every country in the world, we have problems and we need to keep working on them. Nonetheless, we have an extraordinary, extraordinary constitution. It's still in place 250 years later almost I don't know if you're aware of this, but that's the oldest written constitution in the world today. That's impressive to me. So we have to, be, we have to be realistic to recognize that our country is flawed. Whether we're the greatest country in the history of the world to me isn't a meaningful question. We're a great country with flaws. We're as great as the people make it. So let's try to make it great. Great. And Russell Kirk broke for me the stereotypical categories of left and right. When you're reading Russell Kirk, you will read about things like localism, the value of the local, of farms, of agrarian society. Almost a distrib- distributistic philosophy of economics. He's opposed to monopolies. But he's also opposed to hyperregulation of the market. He's opposed to centralization of authority. He's opposed to a number of things that, that um, left and right favor. And for that reason, he was popular and well-received by, by both sides and also criticized by both sides. But I want to focus here on his views of education. After all, this is about why did we call the Paidea Prize, the Russell Kirk Paidea Prize. The impact that Russell Kirk had on my views of education, the clarity that he brought to me, I can read to you <laughs> the passages that impacted me. And what I want to do here is to go negative first. I want to show you what, what, Ru- what Russell Kirk is responding to um, and then how he's responding to it. And I'm going to do that by reading to you out of his book, Prospects for Conservatives, the chapter called The Question of Mind. I believe this book, which was written in 1989, I believe it's still easy to buy. At one point it had another title. Um, Let's see. Prospects for Conservatives. Yeah, that's the only title I see here. So let me read to you something from Prospects for Conservatives in which he talks about the way education was being done in 1989. And those of you who think that education has gone bad since you were a kid... You're wrong. A system of education, he says, in which respect for the wisdom of our ancestors is deliberately discouraged and an impossible future of universal beneficence taken for granted. A system in which all the wealth of myth and fable, the symbolic study of human nature, is cast aside as so much rubbish a system in which religion is treated, at least covertly, this was 1989, as nothing better than exploded superstition or at best a vague collection of moral observations. A system in which all the splendor and drama of history is discarded in favor of amorphous social studies. A system in which the imaginative literature of 28 centuries is relegated to a tiny corner of the curriculum in favor of adjustment. A system in which the physical and natural sciences are huddled incoherently together as if they formed a single discipline, and then are taught as a means to power over nature and man, not as a means to wisdom. A system in which the very tools to any sort of apprehension of systematic knowledge, spelling, and grammar— mathematics and geography, are despised as boring impediments to socialization? Why, is it possible to conceive of a system better calculated, to starve the imagination, discourage the better student, and weaken reason? In this, the thinking conservative must be a radical. He must strike at the root of this perversion of learning, For in most of our state-supported schools nowadays and in probably the greater part of our universities and colleges, the, quote, educational, end quote, process has become inimical to the real human person. That last phrase, the real human person, has always leapt out to me as the neglected thing in school, (laughs) We hear all the time about teach the whole person, or at least we did for a while. But do you notice that that whole person that we're supposed to teach has already been sliced and diced and only a small portion of him is even allowed to enter the school? It's easy to teach the whole person if he's nothing but a piece of himself. He goes on and says, Is it any wonder that our educational administrators, to escape from the spectacle of their own failure, turn to purposeless aggrandizement, plant doubled and tripled and quadrupled enrollments, larger staffs, larger salaries, tougher athletic teams, as a means of concealing from the public the gigantic fraud they have put upon the nation. Here the conservative task must be one of assault and reconstruction rather than simply one of defense. This is the corruption which has overtaken the individual reason, the higher imagination of the human person. But this is only half the mischief which the Deweyite oligarchy has done to us. The other half, listen to this, is the terrible injury inflicted upon the disciplines which govern any just society. We tend to seem to think or assume as Americans that a just society is the natural state. You're born into it. And if you just, you know, grow up into it, everything will continue on toward perfection. Meanwhile, we look around and see that it's not and never ask ourselves, well, then what should we be teaching? Or if we ask that question, we, we reduce it to power mongering. What if there are disciplines? What if, what if there are disciplines that govern a just society that take a lifetime to learn? What if there are disciplines that cultivate wisdom and virtue, without which wisdom and virtue isn't cultivated? I would go so far as to say that's basically the premise of everything. Combining Russell Kirk with David Hicks's Norms and Nobility, and then the long tradition that that we meditate on together, I would say that that's the the fundamental premise of everything we do at Circe. That there are that that the cultivation of wisdom and virtue requires everything you've got, everything you've got. And to be distracted by anything else means to put your society at risk. In his book, in this chapter, The Question of Mind, on page 50, Russell Kirk points out that politics is the preoccupation of the quarter-educated. And infatuated with political techniques and sentimental humanitarianism, we have endangered the very springs of human achievement by neglecting the wardrobe of a moral imagination. It's not enough to teach political techniques. It's not enough to root your theories in sentimental humanitarianism. It is necessary to cultivate the wardrobe of a moral imagination. He tells us that the practice of the unbought grace of life will not survive the vanishing of its principle, and its principle must be nourished in every generation by the men and women who have wealth, power, and eminence. If you have wealth, power, and eminence, even in just your neighborhood, and you're not cultivating the well-bought grace of life, we're in trouble. He says there are two aspects to the degradation of the modern mind. One of these is the effect upon the person, the starving of nearly every man's and woman's higher imagination, so that reason, the faculty which distinguishes the human person in this world from the brutes, which nobody believes apparently anymore, I added that, reason is reduced in acuity and in depth. This is the worst thing that can be done to a person. Worse than political tyranny or physical injury. And the other aspect is the effect upon the republic or society. The neglect of those intellectual and moral disciplines which enable us to live together harmoniously. And which are the foundation of free government. This assault upon intelligence, if it is not repelled, must end by subjecting the great majority of men to the mastery of a few managers and manipulators or else in anarchy it will be one of those two extremes and they'll swing back and forth are we now becoming subject to a few managers over at apple over at the at the congress over at the in washington over at amazon is that's what's happening? Is that what, what's happening to us? Is there so little intelligence that we flee for wisdom, for security to distant entities who know nothing about us, who aren't increasingly even people? The people who accept or applaud the educational schemes and the social alterations with, which accelerate this decay of reason, are doing all they can to deprive modern society of both true leadership and intelligent self reliance, and all they can to make the inner life of the person one vast utilitarian tedium, peopled only by smug generalizations. He tells us that where there is no liberal learning in the long run, there is no civilization. He tells us that liberal disciplines offer to everyone able to undertake them. I just love this so much. Liberal disciplines offer to everyone able to undertake them the possibility of becoming a gentleman. Far from being an instrument of class supremacy, a liberal education has long been a far more effective leveler than any program of positive legislation in America And unlike most devices for producing equality through juridical and economic devices, a liberal education levels upward, not downward. What does our country need now, if not ladies and gentlemen? What is a gentleman? What is a lady? Somebody with an elevation of mind and temper. Generosity and courage of mind, which are the property of every person whose intelligence and character have been humanely disciplined. What did Burke and Newman mean? They meant that liberal education and that habit of acting upon principles which rise superior to immediate advantage and private interest, which distinguish the free man from the servile man. There cannot be too many gentlemen among us. The end of liberal education, he says, is the disciplining of free minds. And the method is the study of that unbroken chain of literary and intellectual tradition, which extends from the ancient to the modern world. There you have it. That's what the Circe Institute is trying to achieve within ourselves and with all those we serve. Our debt to Russell Kirk is immeasurable. I wish I could express these ideas as well as he did. I hope that you will get some, some books by Russell Kirk and read them. Maybe, maybe, get some, maybe there's some YouTube lectures. Maybe you can become a member of the Russell Kirk Society. Get to know Russell Kirk's writings. I'm going to say this seriously. I believe Russell Kirk is the single most important political thinker of the last half of the 20th century. I will say I know I know, <laughs> Ronald Reagan, if you're a Republican and liked Ronald Reagan, he would not have been elected if Russell Kirk hadn't written The Conservative Mind in 1952. More than that, our country would be even more fragmented than it is now if Russell Kirk hadn't shown that right and left aren't really what we think they are. And aren't really all that valuable as categories. Read Prospects for Conservatives, especially The Question of Mind. Read The Roots of American Order, one of my favorite books on American history, which goes back to the ancient Hebrews. Read The Politics of Prudence. Get your hands on The Conservative Mind, which is uh, a history of conservatism back to Edmund Burke. And please understand that this conservatism is not going to be party conservatism. It's not political conservatism. That's the hangup of the quarter educated. It's deep. It's so much more than what you've been led to believe conservatism is by Fox News or Rush Limbaugh. And if, all, if, if you don't want to read so many books, and he's written quite a few, get the essential Russell Kirk ISI published this a while back. The Essential Russell Kirk has chapters from all these books and others. But most of all, seek the unbought grace of life and raise your children to be principled people who are ladies and gentlemen because there's nothing that our communities need more right now than ladies and gentlemen. And as you raise your children to be ladies and gentlemen...